Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton, and today we're looking back at the highlights from the last 100 episodes of the Fabulous Pelton Cast from 201 through 300. When we released the best of episodes 101 through 200 two years ago, it happened to come out on March 11th, 2020, the day the sports world shut down after Utah Jazz All-Star Rudy Gobert's diagnosis with COVID-19. That sent us into a very different place to record the first of our next 100 episodes. So the world looks very different than it did when we podcasted one week ago today. Uh, back then, I think we were anticipating you know, the possibility of playing games without spectators in attendance, but did not anticipate that within 48 hours of that podcast that basically every sport in the United States would shut down, starting with the NBA. And what was a pretty surreal night? I mean, this must have been, I don't know if you had the Jazz Thunder game queued up at home. I didn't. I was just seeing the updates on Twitter. I was watching something else. I mean, that series of tweets where it's like, the Jazz Thunder game is being delayed because of some reason. And I mean, it was, it, was, pretty... it was obvious that it was something COVID-19 related. It wasn't clear that immediately that Gobert necessarily had tested positive, but certainly that there was concern about that. Well, it felt like it was like boom, boom, boom. It was like the game is being delayed. We're like, okay, some shit is going down. And then it was like Rudy Gobert is being tested. And then it was like, Well, the Rudy boom. Gobert is test being tested report was a fake tweet. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that wasn't actually true. I mean, it was true, but it, it was not. I could, No, it wasn't because it reported both Go, Go, Gobert and Emmanuel Moutier were tested, and Moutier was only tested post-game as part of the whole group. But then it, it was just the, the secession, and then it was Woj, I think, who had the tweet. Maybe this was Shams who said that it was positive test for Gobert, and then just instantly the NBA season has been suspended. Yeah, Shams reported that the test was positive. He was the, the first... NBA media member. There was someone else who reported it previously, and it turned out to be true a little bit beforehand. Uh, and then three minutes later, Woj broke the news that the NBA was postponing the season, which was, I mean, it wasn't shocking after that news, but still shocking. I mean, just reading that tweet, like, that's the type of tweet that you read and you remember the place that you're in when it happens, which is something we'll be talking about a couple times in the year 2001, uh, which we'll be talking about shortly. But it was like reading a tweet that says the NBA season has been suspended is like that's not something you see ever. Right. No, I mean, that's definitely going to be a night that we're always going to remember, uh, you know, hopefully in a positive way in terms of it preventing the further spread of the virus and you know, being an important signal to people that this was something to take seriously and a major concern and not, you know, just kind of a minor deal. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely going to be a night we're always going to – when we do this in 20 years, we will remember that night. <laughs> when we remember this year. I mean, that and then Hanks at the same time. Like, there's the presidential speeches going on, and basically, like, that ends or is about to happen. And then just one after another, the Gobert news into the NBA season being postponed into Hanks – Testing positive was which technically like, first. It was just crap. like, this is too much to process. Yeah, I mean, it was especially a lot to process if you had attended a Utah Jazz practice the week before. Oh, my God. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so e e there is no sports. And really the only precedent that we have for this 
is something we're going to talk about in the wake of 9-11 in 2001 when all leagues shut down for a week. I think MLB returned a week after 9-11, and that was the – or maybe six days after 9-11. The Mariners first played a week after. That's the only precedent for this, and you know we're four days in, but it's, it's clearly going to be a very long period of time as this region and this country deals with something that we don't have any modern precedent for. It is kind of a strange symmetry to be talking about 2001 and this year, right, this week. So, I mean, it it feels a little trivial to be talking about these things at this point, but as long as, you know, I think the conditions warrant it, we plan to continue podcasting. Fortunately, it's something that we can do remotely while maintaining the important social distance that now is really being enforced in the state of Washington and perhaps soon throughout the country. Uh, and, you know, hopefully something that can entertain you is is your remaining at home. Or not. Yeah, <laughs> why start now? Not, 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 not the remaining at home, yes, the entertaining you. We promise nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said on Twitter, it's fortunate in some ways that we had already been preparing by not talking about Seattle sports for a long period of time now. <laughs> we, we had no idea that Let's Remember Some Years would be would – be, it would have to carry so much weight. You were upset that it was taking an hour before, and now you're happy that it was it's, taking an hour. It's going to be the whole hour. I mean, we have some Seahawks news to discuss. We'll, we'll talk about the end of the UW men's basketball season uh, on this week's pod. But uh, going forward, news going to be, it seems like, pretty sparse. I mean, basically all these leagues announced shutdowns at 30 days, but with the CDC recommending on Sunday that gatherings of more than 50 people be postponed for eight weeks, it, it does not seem like the return of sports is remotely imminent. Well, there was the Woj report. I think he was talking about this on SportsCenter yesterday. That basically the NBA is planning for a mid-June return at best. Yeah, that was the best case scenario that they were imagining. So over the next few months, we filled in by continuing our Let's Remember Some Years series and also introducing some new segments. No, we well, were going to do this anyway. Yeah, another idea that came up and now seems to be the right for, time for it. Uh, that's right. Welcome, please. The Pelton Cast Hall of Fame, presented by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. Because Pagliacci belongs in Canton slash Cooperstown slash Springfield slash Boulevard Park. Just like these candidates you're going to hear about today. Welcome to the inaugural class of the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame. Wait, is the, is the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame going in Boulevard Park? That's awfully close to the Hydroplane uh, Race Boat Museum. Is that going to be... Taking, we're taking over the Race Boat Museum. <laughs> well, we may induct that at some point here. So we're starting... The Pelton Cast Hall of Fame is maybe more relevant at this moment. So we're going to have eight inductees in the inaugural Hall of Fame class. The two of us have chosen four Veterans Committee picks, and those are ones that we've talked about a lot on the podcast already, and we don't feel like necessarily we need to get into over the next couple of weeks here, uh, but they certainly belonged in the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame. So in order, the Veterans Committee selections. Here we go. Loretta's Tavern. A, a no-brainer. And, and also, but we're c- considering, and it's not technically in Boulevard Park, but maybe the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame is technically hosted at Loretta's HQ in South Park. Wow, that is a brilliant idea. Uh, it's, it's in the Airstream trailer that you can't go in uh, anymore. Uh, is it gone? Is the Airstream gone? It is gone, yeah. Okay, well, the Podcast Hall of Fame is wherever the Airstream trailer is. It resides in the memory of that Airstream trailer, trailer and the podcast we once recorded there. Uh, 
Taco Time Northwest was another of course. automatic choice. Ken Griffey Jr. What, what else do we need to say about his importance to our youth? And lastly, Cube 93, something that's been coming up <laughs> a lot on the podcast lately during Let's Remember Some Years. <laughs> Beat out Vladi Rodmanovich. He was Just a tough barely. competition. Okay, so now for the now we're gonna have the listener vote for the other four spots in the inaugural class, and we've broken that down into two categories. So we'll have polls on Twitter this week that you can vote on. Slowly, sports return to action. Some of them in bubbles, like the WNBA and NBA played in, and that's where we saw the return of the court of a storm legend. It's a league that is playing in a bubble. The WNBA, which tipped off over the weekend on Saturday in the opening game of the season, your Seattle Storm got an 87-71 win over the New York Liberty behind 15 steals. Back on the court for the first time since the 2018 WNBA Finals and winning the championship, Brianna Stewart led the Storm with 18 points, 8 rebounds, and 4 steals. And Sue Bird, after a slow start, had 11 points, 5 assists, was 3 of 5 from 3, a performance commemorated Thanks to Ben Baldwin on Twitter as we looked back on your prediction that her city out last season felt like retirement. Look, you were taking the victory lap here, but the joke's on you. I enjoyed every second of this. I had a great <laughs> time watching Storm basketball on Saturday and was ready for more. As their season approached, the Seahawks made a bold but risky trade. For safety, Jamal Adams. Do you will. know how you continue to get good talent, though? Is by drafting players and having draft capital and rebuilding it that way. And that's, to me, the, the other piece of it that's upsetting is people being like, the Seahawks are shitty at drafting in the first round anyway. It's like, great, that is true. The the first I, picks that the team has made for the last two seasons, not, not including this year, have been uh, players who have not exceeded their contract value so far. It's about the capital, though. It's about taking it and being able to flip these players or these picks for more draft picks down the road. And that's what the Seahawks are good at. The Seahawks aren't good at making an individual draft pick. The Seahawks are good at having a lot of draft capital and ending up with some good players. I'm making a lot of draft picks because no, the thing is, even though the Seahawks used their first-round picks in frustrating fashion, the evidence is strong, extremely strong, that there is no such thing as draftability. At least, maybe there is such a thing as draftability, but you can't tell from teams making 7 to 10 draft picks per year. You'd need, like, dozens of draft picks per year to be able to figure out which teams are actually good at drafting and which teams aren't. So that's why you just want to accumulate draft picks. And, yeah, that is the big downside here is even if the Seahawks were going to trade down from whatever that pick might have been, then they would have added additional picks in the third and fourth that, round. That, and now they've they given up trade, a third rounder. They didn't trade three picks. They traded, like, eight picks. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. So th that's that, to me, is the most frustrating piece. But granted, like I said, if, if this team is actually at the point – and if we're actually convinced that they're at the place that they are going to compete for a Super Bowl within these next two years, all right, great, let's do it. <laughs> you know, we'll probably be able to figure it out around Russell Wilson after that anyway. Getting a little bit hyped on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think this is this is the most Seahawks trade ever. 
There have been some very Seahawks trades before. Percy Harvin, Jimmy Graham, etc. The list is long. This may be the most Seahawks trade in terms of like, number one, we are willing to pay whatever it takes to get star talent, which is something that, again, to go back to that lack of top 10 players, they had Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, number two at their respective, uh, number two, Wilson at quarterback. Uh, Wagner, I believe, was the number one linebacker. Those were the only top 10 players they had in any position. So, you know, they needed to go out and add star talent, and they were willing to pay whatever it takes. And also in terms of, like, you know, we're willing to trade our draft picks. We're willing to be aggressive towards winning now if that's what it takes. With stay-home orders still in place in September, we decided to do a live podcast via Zoom instead of in person. And the Athletics, Mike Sean Dugar, stole the show during his segment talking about, well, I guess the Seahawks. I'm sure, like, you know, after this first game, somebody's going somebody's gonna to pop up. I'm going to be like, that's the guy, you know. I can't, I don't want to say the next Christian Michael because, like, you know, some <laughs> shoes are too big to, to really think of filling. But, like, there's going to be some, like, wild card guy. I don't know. Mike, Sean, who do you think will be like the wild card favorite that will become beloved by Seahawks Twitter? That's a good one. It would have been John Arsua, I would guess. Right, right. Maybe he already he, is, though. That doesn't count. He like, would be someone who doesn't have much of a social media presence, but if he did have one, he'd be really awkward, like uh, like Russell, but in like a less cheesy way. Man, that's a that's a tough one. I think... I think DJ Dallas would be a good one. He's got that's some the one. He's a, he's a fun cat. I like him a lot. He doesn't know how to lie to us yet, so that's really fun. <laughs> Once you get to, like, year four or year three, like, you learn how to lie to us on Zoom or whatever. DJ is like, oh, yeah, I'll tell you whatever I'm feeling because that's what I'm supposed to do. I like you guys. We haven't burned him yet. We will. <laughs> we haven't yet. But until we do, DJ Dallas might be the guy. This reminds me, uh, once with a rookie Sonics player, I was like, man, I, this player is so nice and earnest. Uh, it's going to be a really depressing when they become old and get jaded. And the and punchline Robert to that Swift. story, it was Robert Swift. <laughs> was it really Robert Swift? It really was Robert Swift. It 100% was. It's, it's a sad story. He got so, old and jaded by like 23. Well, yeah. We don't have time to get into it, unfortunately. Uh, making it clear why I love George Fan. Ignore it. I had a really big argument with someone. It was me and Gino and George versus someone who was a really big Eminem fan. And I just cannot stand Eminem. So it was, I had to ride for my guy Wayne. This is before. From earlier, it sounds like maybe Lockett. No, he, he is a rapper and a poet, but I don't, I can't really argue music with him. The music guys in the locker room that I can argue with are Gino, uh, well, not anymore, but Gino, George, Dwayne Brown, who's a big Nas guy, which says a lot about Dwayne. That he's old. Yeah. You're a Nas fan from Virginia? Like, what? What the fuck is wrong with you? Justin Britt, who has the best musical taste on the roster, probably. Uh, and Jay Reed all have good good taste in music. But yeah, George is my guy. Uh, fuck, I forgot what the... Oh, playoff wins. I'll take, I'll take the over on that. Yeah, let's go ahead and make it a clean sweep on the over. Over, over under times that Justin Britt was called the best music fan on the Seahawks roster anywhere on earth. It's it's one of those weird things because you, no one is in the locker room, but if you do, you'll see him in there with his big-ass boombox playing the hottest new shit 
all, all the time until Luke Wilson comes and cranks up some house music and then everyone tells him to shut the fuck up. Uh, here's a, uh, I'm a big movie guy. If you guys have all seen the movie Life, Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence, ton of superstars in it. There's a scene where they're all uh, imagining Ray's boom boom room and Martin Lawrence's character is trying to sleep in their bunks. And he leans over and is like, hey, pipe down. In which I hear that bullshit. That's basically everyone when Luke plays techno. <laughs> there was a, a defensive player came over and was like, Luke, turn this shit off. And he did it right away. I won't say which player, but he, he made it very known. Like, I'm the captain. Turn this fucking shit off. <laughs> okay, so we know it's the Seahawks defensive captain. Well, no, not a captain. Like, one of those. You know the movie? What movie is that? Um, where he's like, the African the- movie. Just like, oh, I'm the captain now. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those looks where it was just <laughs> kind of walked over like. Oh, my God. Okay, what's the best, the best Lil Wayne mixtape? Like, oh, fuck. Um, drought 3. There we go. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would go with Drought 3. I'm 28 years old, so, like, Drought 3 is, like, right when I was able to, like, master the use of profanity. <laughs> like age like maybe like 12 13 and once you master profanity hip-hop takes a whole new turn hey, and then once maybe his fantasy genius has done that at a much, much younger age when you're into <laughs> my, age, children, my children have done it oh man it's it's crazy yeah drop all the dedications are good too dedication two is really good yeah dedication two i think that's got a lot of jay mills on it i really like jay mills uh it's his birthday today too actually uh, I <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Jay Mills' birthday. Jay, I don't know if anyone's in New York. Nally in New York? I think Jay Mills' no, birthday. <laughs> yeah, Dedication oh 2 and then Drought 3. Those are my, my two favorites. I'm a big Wayne guy. A ride for Wayne. Wow. And also, shouts to Justin Britt. Big yeah, guy. man. Justin Britt's into like, all the new trap rap. If there's new Young Thug, that's out. There's new Rod Wave, NBA Young Boy. Like, it, Justin Britt's on all of it, man. Random white guy from, like, Missouri, I think he's from. Just this is to everything. Later in the live show, we looked back on the origins of the Let Russ Cook movement and the key roles played by a pair of third Pelton brothers. Make sure to share the fucking audio if you have audio. Oh, no. There's no audio this time. A brief oh, no. history oh, of no. letting Russ. Oh, no. They muted Zach. Oh, no. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> so for a long time on the internet, Twitter, let Russ Cook was only about one person, and that person was not Russell Wilson. That person was Russell Westbrook, which is, is not a good, is good of an idea to let Russell Westbrook cook. This actually, by the way, is one of my editors at ESPN who tweeted this. Uh, this is the very first tweet I found that said, Let's let Russ cook in regards to Russell Wilson. This was during the Atlanta playoff loss in 2013. Yeah. Shouts to at piano underscore J. Yeah. Uh, Wherever you time, are. Really. The underscore is doing a lot of work there. We tried to get him there. Look who had an early Let Russ there Cook reference. Go. Infrared, it's up. I was pleading at this point. Yo, you knew what time it was. I knew. I knew when I needed it. And I needed all caps, too. So, it made <laughs> really Twitter really started to get radicalized with the loss to the Cowboys after the 2018 season. I loved this reply to Pete Carroll. <laughs> Shouts to add her Kevlar. But like, in general, I'm not a big believer in the great man theory of history. 
I think that most of what happens is a product oh, of no. being at the right place at the right time. But sometime an individual so singular comes along and changes the course of history with their tweets. And that person is, of course, Zach Whitman. <laughs> the last week of September 2019, three Let Russ Cook tweets. And then it was on. The floodgates were open. And now here's where we are. We've got two Let Russ Cook t-shirts. Neither of which Jack has been given a free one. Only Ben Bear. <laughs> Yeah. And then we, here's, oh my God. Okay. Just go, go. This is good. This is good. Just. Then we reach the culmination, which is when let Russ cook is blamed for pushing a wedge between Russell Wilson <laughs> and Pete Carroll. Zach, how does it feel to be responsible for this? You know, um, it feels, I mean, first of all, I wanted my posting to matter for a very long time and I've been trying for it to matter for a very long time. And it feels like the culmination of a long time of posting. I was listening to Don Tony Wingcast in 2009. That wasn't the start. I've been posting for years and for finally my posting, just, just pounding that rock, hammering that rock over and over again in my own life. And finally I make the difference. Right. So it's a, it's a point of achievement. I mean, like was Toshi the first person to cook teriyaki? No. But did he make Seattle-style teriyaki? Yes. That's, I, I see myself as a Toshi-like figure. That Sunday, the Seahawks opened the 2020 season by blowing out the Falcons in Atlanta and, well, letting Russ cook. Third Pelton brother Ben Baldwin joined us for an emergency post-game pod. And what better way to come back than after the Seahawks scored 38 points in one game? Uh, very, very good to be back on. Opening question <laughs> here is, have the nerds won? <laughs> It sure seems like it. Um, I, I kind of made a joke after Andy Reid went for a fourth and one in a close game on, I think it was his own, like 35 or something. And, and I was like, I wonder if the Seahawks will go for fourth downs now. Ha ha ha. And then they they go for this fourth and five and throw a, a bomb to DK Metcalf for a touchdown. So um, that plus all the passing, um, definitely uh, signs are pointing up for the nerds after a long time of uh, not that. Pointing up for the nerds. Uh, I, I said a couple of weeks ago that one of my favorite things to do was admitting that I was wrong. Uh, and I'm so hyped to admit that I'm wrong after this game. And I think one of the main reasons that I was wrong about this one was I did not expect the Seahawks team to look so similar, yet slightly so different. And I think if you ask yourself the question of, what are the things from last year's Seahawks season that we would have liked to have seen differently? They basically would have been, we would have liked to have seen more passing in general, especially more passing on early downs, which we saw here. We would have liked to have seen more nickel be played and less base defense. We would have liked to have seen more pre-snap motion. And I think we hit kind of all of those different points in this game. Yep, for sure. Um, the the pre-stop motion was noticeable. Um, I think on the very first play of the game, um, they had this kind of jet motion. And unfortunately, it was a boot that the Falcons were expecting. So it ended in a sack. But at least it was like, okay, they're they're kind of doing what people want them to. And um, they there was more of that as the game went on. And it worked better on most other plays than that first play. But after that first play, I was like, Oh no, they, they tried to come out passing and they got sacked and they're just going to go back to what they're comfortable doing. But to their credit, they really didn't. And um, they, they really unleashed Russ for almost the whole game. 
A week later, the Seahawks moved to 2-0 by winning a Sunday night thriller over the New England Patriots. Zach joined us to get hyped and break it down. What a game it was. I feel like we have to start at the very end. The final play here. What odds did we give Cam Newton of scoring a touchdown on goal to go from the one-yard line? Wait, final can, play can, we just, can we get some hype for a second before we get into that? <laughs> I've got uh, Zach. Hello. We're here. Hello. Hello. With the great man. I've been down here for 20 minutes practicing my hellos. I'm down here. We're here with the great man of Let Russ Cook. The Zach Toshi Whitman. of Let Russ Cook. The Toshi of Let Russ Cook. I've got pouring myself here some victory scotch for this one. This is not a thing huge. To, I'm pouring myself some victory rain here. I don't have a rain here. <laughs> that's, that's your problem, not mine. I have decaf Earl Grey, if that counts. <laughs> <laughs> He's the great man of decaf Earl Grey also. Well, it's appropriate because decaf Metcalf is going to come up a oh, time or two go. in this podcast. There, there we go. go. There is, there I, is. I mean, just what a freaking night. Like, uh, Al, I got to tell you, I just love watching football here. <laughs> There's something about the Seahawks games on NBC, too. Obviously, there's a history that we don't need to talk about with the first one. But then, obviously, like, what, four years ago? I think it was in 2016, in, like, November, there was the C.J. Proceis game. Yeah. ended on the Gronkowski fade in the end zone. So there's something just, like, really cinematic. Similar. It's just incredible. You see the, like, I see the NBC logo. I see Al, Al Michaels and Chris Collins sliding in, and I just have, like, these weird, like, emotions all wrapped up in just the broadcast of it, which it feels almost unlike any other opponent, any other like broadcast, like Sunday night Patriots Seahawks is just emotional and in a, in a crazy way. Would you like some Pelton cast history? The very first emergency pod history by inviting Zach onto this one. Well, the very first emergency pod after we uh, returned to the air was after the Seahawks Patriots game on Sunday night football. That wow, it's huge. Yeah, Make, making history then, making history now. Just uh, football is such a fun sport to watch. And really the highs and the lows, the the pit in your stomach that I'm assuming all of us felt oh, during that yeah. last drive. We had a group chat that was going earlier and than the was last drive. Dead. Dead. There was no chatter because all of us were too stressed heading into that last drive. Nobody could talk. I'm I'm there beating myself up for thinking earlier in the five minutes earlier i'm like oh the seahawks could go into the bye week undefeated and i'm just like what a fucking idiot for thinking that ahead of time of course we're going to lose this game and to have it come down to a play that we've seen throughout the night be pretty much unstoppable including the time that they passed you just knew at that one yard line we're even criticizing the patriots for being like why are they holding on to this timeout and then we see why they're holding on to that timeout and it's set up for the key play that has happened throughout the night to happen on the very last play of the game it is crazy to me that the last two games have ended with the Seahawks Patriots games ended on the one yard line with Marquee, like Gronkowski from Brady on a fade, Cam Newton on a goal line dive, 
both times somehow the Seahawks make it out with Delano Hill, obviously, you know, the hero, but just absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was a little different last time because it was Cam Chancellor who was playing the hero. It was like, <laughs> that was a little more predictable. Uh, you know, if it had been Jamal Adams making the play today, that would have been more similar. But in this case, yes, yeah, some unlikely heroes. It's Lano Hill and LJ Collier, the first two, to get to Cam Newton. Uh, Superman, who definitely dons his cape in inside the five. Like, in, he's always been unstoppable in those situations. But somehow in the context of the New England offense, he's even more unstoppable than unstoppable. In October, the Storm capped off their wobble season by winning the franchise's fourth title, sweeping the Las Vegas Aces in the finals. So there we go, a toast to the Storm on the fourth WNBA championship in oh, franchise history. Now the Storm have won as many championships without me as a member of the organization as they did during my 10 years as part of the organization. Oh, no. Well, well let's start by talking about this series. You know, the Storm with a pretty dominating 3-0 victory. None of the games were even that close, right? I mean, game one and game two, you know, Vegas tied, I think, game one going into the fourth quarter, had made a run in the third in the second half of game two as well. And then both times the Storm pulled away in the fourth quarter of those ones, really used their depth. And this time it came much earlier as they pulled away in the second quarter and Vegas never really threatened thereafter. And, and obviously, you know, Sue and Brianna are the team leaders of this team. Uh, but who really stood out for you during this final series? I mean, I think everyone did in their own way. Like, it's not like they didn't. Stewie was the unanimous MVP. She had finished second to Asia Wilson of the Aces in voting for regular season MVP. And she showed everybody in the series, particularly in game one, when she had maybe the best game in WNBA Finals history. I think it was 37-15, and Asia Wilson went 6 of 20 from the field. It was like, this is the real MVP. Like, we, we saw it on display. I mean, Sue, I think this was probably the best of her four WNBA Finals at age 39. She set the single-game record for assists. I think she finished with the highest assist average in a WNBA Finals in WNBA history. The Storm set the record for assists in a game in Game 2 after tying it in Game 1, and Sue was at the center of that. And then, I mean, you just go down the list. Jewel Lloyd struggled a little bit in Game 1, but was awesome in Game 2 and Game 3. I think when we talk about this team versus the 2018 team, one thing that needs to be mentioned, in 2018, the two Series clinching victories the Storm had. Game five against Phoenix in the semifinals. Game three against Washington in the finals. Jewel Lloyd was not on the court for the fourth quarter of either of those mm. games or for the stretch run. Sammy Whitcomb, who did yep. not play in this series because she uh, headed back home to Australia to, to try to make sure that uh, she's there for the birth of uh, her and her wife Kate's first son. So, uh, you know, hope, hoping that happens. I've got a story coming about that on ESPN.com that may be up by the time that you listen to this podcast. But Jewel was awesome in this series, uh, really made Vegas pay for their difficulty defending the pick and roll with their size. Alicia Clark, she struggled in game one, too, couldn't make a shot, then had 21 points in game two. Uh, Natasha Howard was huge in game two. Mercedes Russell off the bench playing big minutes because Brianna Stewart got in foul trouble in the first half of this this game Tuesday night, game three. And the Storm extended their lead with Brianna Stewart on the bench, which is a wild. And then Jordan Canada, big minutes off the bench. Epiphany Prince had double figures in game one. I mean, 
really everybody who saw action in this extended action in this series played a huge part in it. It's an incredibly deep team. And, and I was going to say, it's almost easier for Sue to have this kind of performance in this finals when you're playing with such a deep team. Uh, that's always, I mean, that's always been her strength. Like it's when she plays with the national team, she almost never shoots and she just racks up assists because she's got so much talent around her. That's her like natural state. The Seattle Sounders couldn't bring home a second consecutive MLS Cup, losing in the final at Columbus, but they managed to get there with a thrilling victory in the Western Conference Final, coming from behind to beat Minnesota. I'm going to break it to you right now before we get into it. was not the best Seattle sports week in history, but they did what both of the other teams couldn't do, and you had that inkling, because you're an idiot like myself, where you're like, wow, it's actually happening. Oh, maybe they're going to score too early. The thing that a stupid person would think. <laughs> and I thought both of those things on Saturday, on Sunday, on Monday, and the Sounders actually did it. They actually came back, and I was like, "Huh, four minutes left of extra time. Let's not. Let's not wait. Let's get this done right now. Let's not get to extra time. Let's do it right here in stoppage time." And that's what the Sounders did. I mean, if we're just getting into it, which I assume we should because of the excitement about this match, this was not the best performance by the Sounders in this run of repeated MLS Cup appearances because that was last year in the Western Conference final against LAFC, beating a juggernaut team 3-1 on the road. It wasn't the most important of these games because those would be the two MLS Cup finals at Toronto FC or that they won at least at Toronto FC in 16 and then home against Toronto FC last year for the first cup that they'd won in front of a full sellout crowd at then CenturyLink Field, now Lumen Field. But I think this is going to go down as the single most memorable match that the Sounders have ever played. Wow. I mean... Ever the social media lit up after this match in a way that it, it often does not during even playoff matches for the Sounders. And I, I think that's a combination of factors. Number one, to me, if you were comparing this to a Seattle sporty event in the past, it would be the 2014 NFC Championship game, mm -hmm. where same thing, a team that's the defending champs playing at home, seems like everything's set up perfectly, and then everything's goes disastrously for like three quarters of the game. And then all of a sudden Mike McCarthy starts to run out the clock and the Seahawks. And in this case, the Sounders come back. And that is such a thrilling moment. That's why we were suckered in on Saturday and Sunday, maybe not as much on Sunday as Saturday, but like a, a comeback, something seemingly gone and then found again, the prodigal victory it's the most one of the most fun things in sports. There's a term for this that you're 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 dancing around, right? We saw the darkness. Oh, we saw a lot of darkness. And that's what really matters when you're paying attention to sport. This is why deep down in the back of your mind you're like, it'd be kind of fun if they got down, right? Like you don't you don't actually want to say it. I know that you want to get into the psychology of fandom later, but like the <laughs> I don't forget to be a full lot into that. I, I'm the, just saying I could go there if I wanted to. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> this is the this is why you pay attention to sport. Winning games is not actually that much fun. Seeing the darkness and coming back, the opposite of losing is so much more fun than winning. I was like, when this match started, I paid almost no attention the first 
40 minutes or so, right? Even when the Sounders were down a goal, it was like I was doing other stuff. I was cooking dinner. I was doing whatever, right? I was going around. Quarantine. When Minnesota scored the second goal, that's when I was like, oh, oh no. Like, things are real here. I can't take this for granted anymore, right? This is Wayne Gallman going off for that long run. You're like, oh, shit just got real. And that's what you need in sport to be like, it is time to lock in. And that's what happened to the Sounders. The second goal happened. And I think both, maybe the Sounders as a team, were even, despite the fact that this was the Western Conference Championship, maybe even taking this match for granted a little bit. And as fans, it was like, oh shit, we're not going to win this easily. I mean, I don't know that I think they were taking it for granted. But the other thing that happened, the other reason that this was such a memorable game, you talk about this all the time. In a situation like this, in a knockout round game in soccer, when a team is down by multiple goals, that is when you are getting soccer to the maximum. And that's what we saw from the Sounders, just peppering shots over and over again down the stretch of this game. And that's so much fun. Yes. I mean, you know, soccer is obviously a very tense game in a different way than football, but there's very few situations where I can recall like being compelled to stand because of the excitement of a soccer match in the moment. And that definitely happened at least leading up to the second goal and certainly between the second and third goals. The Seahawks continued the Seattle winning in December, beating the rival LA Rams at home to clinch the NFC West title. Uh, and I will tell you that the Rams offense came out today looking as stiff as Chevy Chase did in that ad. Oh, wow. Wow. Jared Goff showed slightly more mobility, I would say. Not much. Not much. And he was scrambling out there. I mean, this was a game that I feel like some of the stakes were taken away from a little bit early on. And then throughout the day, all of the stakes came back and we're going to talk about what this game means, but really understanding the, the main thing for to me was Ben had tweeted. Does it really matter if the Seahawks win this game? That's Ben Baldwin, third Pelton brother, obviously horseshit, but <laughs> first off, you always want to beat the Rams. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's that aspect of it, but the other thing is you want to put yourself in the position that if other unexpected things happen, it benefits you. And that's where the Seahawks have now put themselves. They're in the position that if unexpected things happen down the road next week with the Saints or the Packers, it could benefit the Seahawks. It's not a situation where we're going to be looking back and kicking ourselves and saying, ah, if we only won that one game. We can still go back and do that about other games throughout this year, oh, yeah. but not from this one. And I think, I think that's what made this such a huge victory. Also, to come back to it, being the NFC West champions is something that, you know, it's going to hang on a banner. They're going to play another home playoff game. It's not going to be a home playoff game in front of fans, but this is something we haven't seen for quite a while. And to me, the other big takeaway from this game was, for better or worse, this looked like the Seahawks that we saw last when they were playing a home playoff game. I, yeah, I buy that. I mean, one of the things you could say is if you go back to the 2017 season, the changing of the guard in the NFC West was the Rams coming to Seattle and just destroying the Seahawks defense and making them look super slow in a way that they did again last year. And even though the Rams haven't continued necessarily winning the division, because obviously last year it was San Francisco, that was 
that ended the Seahawks run atop the, the NFC West. And this is their first championship since then. They've gotten back. Oh, it was a thing of beauty. I mean, we talked about, you know, you remembered vividly each time that the Rams have destroyed the Seahawks. And this was a game where all of Sean McVay's bullshit didn't work. Maybe a couple of throws. Alas, the results were very different a few weeks later at the same location when the Rams came to the Seattle and upset the Seahawks in the opening round of the playoffs. We broke it down and what it meant with Ben Baldwin. They played what is probably, let me do some math here, maybe the third best team in the NFC in that game. You know, fully equipped Rams. It's a conversation. But they weren't <laughs> fully equipped. That's the whole point. <laughs> you keep saying this. The, the Rams are a good team. The Bears are not a good team. Washington is not a good team. And the Seahawks had to play a very good team in the first round. They played a better team in this first round than they did last season. And then they did when they played the Cowboys two seasons ago. This was the best team that the Seahawks have played in a first round of a playoff game. Maybe ever in this. In I, don't, this... I don't know if they were better than the Cowboys. They, it, a healthy Dak Prescott is a lot different than Jared Goff with a broken but the, the dialogue that we had going into that game was that the Cowboys were like 20th in DVOA or something. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but it was, it was that the Cowboys weren't that good in DVOA and the Seahawks were a better team and still lost. And then the Cowboys eventually got better, but it was like, I, I, I don't know. I don't And I think that's what's so frustrating about this is you just leave the game and you're like, what the fuck happened, right? And there's no obvious answer. There's no let Russ cook. There's no, they needed this, they needed that. We're left with a lot of question marks after the game. And I think that's what's really difficult about this loss. And maybe that's what we're here to answer about uh, uh, what happened to the Seahawks offense and where do they go from here. The following day, we reacted to the news that the Seahawks had fired offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer with an emergency pod. And they tried to stop me from podcasting. They cut my power. And I said, you cannot hold me back from emergency podcasting about the Seahawks every single day. 365 emergency podcasts about the Seahawks. Let's go. We are always on call. So the Seahawks news or, or release about this citing philosophical differences. And my ESPN colleague, Adam Schefter, reported that a meeting on Monday night between Schottenheimer and Pete Carroll, after Carroll had said during his media availability on Monday that he ex expected the coaching staff to be back, revealed those philosophical differences, and they agreed to a mutual parting of ways, which wow. it's amazing how often these are mutual. Uh <laughs> What I think that philosophical difference is, is really what we're going to be paying attention to here because it's the most important piece of this conversation, more so than even Brian Schottenheimer coming back. It is, as we talked about yesterday, what is this philosophy that Pete Carroll does not see eye to eye with Brian Schottenheimer on? And I think we have a pretty good understanding of what it is, and I think it's bad. Uh, but there was also the news. I, did this come out today or did we just emphasize it today of the fourth and one play that happened in the game against the Rams where the Seahawks ended up, the clock was running out and they ended up getting a false start and punting. Um, and on that play saying that Pete Car Carroll basically overruled Brian Schottenheimer on the play call and shoddy had, I mean, that's, that's fighting words right there. You know, that's escalating a situation. So I'm not shocked after seeing that, 
that we came to this place on both sides. You know, if you have Pete who's saying, no, this is the wrong play call. And if you have Shoddy who's put in what he thought was his, his best play call for fourth and one, he'd saved this play all season to be unleashed on this fourth and one. And Pete coming in and saying, no, that's wrong. That is, that is a philosophical difference that we see right there. And then they ended up doing fuck all nothing and punting like the whole thing. I just, I would have been curious to have seen one of the plays, but because of that and because of what Pete did by overruling shoddy, not only did we not get to see the play that shoddy had called, we didn't get to see the play that Pete called because of this process taking time to overrule him. And it meant that the Seahawks punted the ball. Like you could pinpoint if you could pinpoint one moment in that entire game that cost the Seahawks the game, it probably wouldn't be that one. It'd be the pick six. But yeah. but if you could pinpoint one of the top five moments that lost the Seahawks the game, I think that you would come to that fourth down false start that led to a punt. And you can look at it pretty clearly and see that P. Carroll, by doing this, cost the Seahawks a playoff win by wow. overruling Shoddy. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think it's even about whether it cost them a win or not. It's it's emblematic of the problems with the process, both in terms of being okay with punting in that scenario and in terms of some sort of disconnect between the head coach and offensive coordinator. So yes, this was from Carroll's availability on Monday. Uh, Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest tweeted, P. Carroll said that he was, quote, fighting the call on the fourth and one that resulted. Fighting the call, right? Those, those are aggressive words. That would, that would, I guess that was actually from the P. Carroll show, I should say, not from the... Uh, Availability. I mean, that does not sound like a coach who plans on bringing their offensive coordinator back. After the Super Bowl, rumors began circulating about the possibility of Russell Wilson demanding a trade from the Seahawks. We brought Mike Sean back on to help us explain what was happening. We're to the point where, and this is anyone who's downplaying this on the media side is really tripping. Like, this is real. Like, look, Mark Rogers went on the record and told ESPN, yeah, nah, there's our four teams, you know, if they went to. That's a very big deal. Like, they. They know what they're doing, Mark and Russell and the rest of the camp. They obviously know. But I, I've, I've taken it a step further, kind of like, man, they must really have given Russell nothing, like really nothing, not even like a, like here's some old line when we might be thinking about. Like, I think even that he'd like would suffice, you know, for like, hey, who are we going after? You know, our O-line stinks. What are we looking at? Oh, don't worry about it. We got it. Okay, well, hold on. I, I can understand Russell's if that's the case. I don't know if that is, but I imagine they're not even giving him that because Russell is not like an irrational guy to understand. You know, you know what I mean? He he understands what power he has and does not have, but they must've really just been like, dude, don't worry, trust us. And he was like, why would I do that? My ribs hurt every Monday, <laughs> you know, after playing the Rams, I'm not going to trust you. Uh, so yeah, I think they're definitely trying to light the fire and it's, it's working. I think, I mean, look at this, the whole world, this is the biggest sports story in the NFL offseason thus far, depending on how you feel about the Stafford trade. You know, that's saying a lot. After the Seahawks season ended, we began searching for Seattle's best fried chicken. And that led Tristan to an important change of heart. I think through this search, I've kind of become anti-chicken strip. Wow! You went from hating the bones to loving the bones. Yeah. Classic Tristan tick. Cookies did it to me. I'm telling you, they just, they fucking, they ruin, they ruin strips forever. Give me, wow. give me the bones. Look, if you can do the bones right, look, you're eating a chicken. Why do you need to eat this bastardized version of an animal where you're chopping off these little pieces and frying it? Give me the real thing. Give me a goddamn drumstick. You know what I mean? 
a drumstick and a wing and a thigh and a breast <laughs> and the other parts of a chicken, which you could possibly eat. Why are you upset about this? I'm sorry. I'm just, I think. I it's think, just the, it's the flip-flop nature of it. It's not a flip-flop nature. I'm sorry. It's, it's about learning more about something and updating your perspective <laughs> about it. Your position has evolved. What is that? Is that not true? Think about how much more chicken I'm eating right now and how much more critically I'm thinking about the chicken that I'm eating now versus January or whatever. Look, I, I feel like, if anything, I should be lauded for this perspective. <laughs> you always feel like, if anything, you should be lauded. Despite appealing to the listener with his change of heart on chicken strips, Tristan still finished a distant third in voting for Pelton Cast MVP, and he had a lot of problems with you people. All right, let's get to our toasts, starting with congratulations to the famous cousin Katie for this earning. Congratulations, a toast? <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> For earning her third consecutive Pelton Cast MVP win with for 36%. For me, this is a let's pour one out to my candidacy for Pelton Cast MVP. This is not a toast for Katie. Uh, talk so, about, you talk about, okay, finish what you're going to say. Well, you will notice that the famous cousin Katie is not joining us this week. She's on a family vacation. We will plan. Not invited. We will plan to have her on the air next week to celebrate her victory and discuss chicken with us. You say... <laughs> That averaging a triple-double has become an everyday feat for Russell Westbrook. I'm doing more than that on every single one of these podcasts. I'm drinking 107 beers on an East to West Coast road trip every single fucking week. Katie comes on one to two times a year, spills a sandwich all over herself, awkwardly orders, and boom, she's the MVP. Is that all it takes? Well, if awkward order it was all I took, then Zach Whitman would be the Pelton Cast MVP. <laughs> I don't think I recall a single Katie appearance from the entire year. There definitely were some classic Katie experiences from oh, the past year. God. And so Katie was, received... Was Jan's epic performance? That was multiple years. That was actually like 2018, just fresh in my mind. No, I think it was 2019, but it, it was not within the Jan's past year. Jan's star-making sure. performance of her walking down the Vegas Strip, getting a single chicken strip at, at Popeye's. Uh, people still talk about it to this day. So Katie had 36% of the listeners' votes. Let's remember some years came in second at 25.5%. So you you also, we all both of us, we also finished behind in inanimate object and something that we have not specifically done in months. Uh, you know what? The in honor of the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame, it makes sense that we would finish behind an inanimate object. <laughs> you were third with 21% of the vote, despite there your desperate pandering pandering. No, four votes. pandering. Just I, I'm not pandering. I'm putting up numbers. That's you're, like saying that fucking okay, but you're out there. LeBron you're, James is pandering, right? Well, when LeBron James does the whole like, oh, I'm always the MVP of the league. That's that's begging for votes, and that's what you were doing too. And so I have you. the self-respect and not to do that. Thank you, LeBron. And James. we finished last at 17 percent. Caruso over here. <laughs> uh, I'm good always news. MVP of the league. Wow. A week later, Katie joined us to accept her MVP trophy and share it with another deserving candidate. No, I was thinking that I, I you know, I should, um, you know, thank all of my supporter for <laughs> voting 
for me again. It's such a thrill, but I wanted to pull a um, Ving Rhames. Um, I'm sure you remember in 1998 how he uh, called Don Lemon up. Not Don Lemon. God damn it. Um, <laughs> I'm so fascinated where this is going. What is his name? The Old Lemon. The Old Lemon. What is his name? You know, Grumpier Old Men, Grumpier Old Men. Oh, Jack Lemon. Yes. Jack, Jack, Liz Jack Lemon. Lemon. There we go. Whatever. Anyways, he called him up on stage and he said, I want to share my Golden Globe or Emmy or one of those with you because I think it should have been yours. And so I think that it would only be right to share um, this honor with someone who brings it every week for the podcast. Someone who is, you know, puts it all that time, just an extraordinary amount of time every week. They're just dedicated to the cause. And that that um, I'm going to call right up right now to share this with me. And that is going to be an awkwardly long pause. Oh, no. <laughs> wow, awkwardly long pause. Love to be here tonight. Very excited to be here. It, You're the real MVP. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well done. I was really upset that that didn't make the top voting. So, um uh, there may have been some strategic voting from multiple accounts by me to prevent that. <laughs> that may or may not have happened. Wait, are you serious? It's fixed. I am serious, yes. The whole ballot is fixed. I have a lot of different accounts, as you know. Wow. Did you vote for yourself? In all, no, all these no. Accounts? That was, this was, uh, no, I, I actually did not vote for myself even in the final ballot. But these were the polls to determine the last finalist. So I was voting for Let's Remember Some Years, which did, in fact, come in second in the voting. So I thought it was a reasonable choice. Let's Remember Some Years was only in a handful of podcasts. Awkward silence is sprinkled throughout all of the Pelton cast. In terms of volume, it's tough to top. That's for sure. I, I don't think this was ever a thing before we started having to do Zoom podcasts. I feel like it's gotten like much more prominent in the post-Zoom era. The thing is, I think a lot of people think I don't edit these podcasts, that I just put a, slap them up immediately after we're done. And that's not true. I'm doing a shit ton of editing, and still there's all these awkward pauses. So think about what it must sound like when we're recording it. <laughs> you think that's more of a compliment to yourself than it is. Oh, no, I don't think that at all. I'm just, it's a defense of myself in some one limited way. Oh boy. Awkwardly long pause is the real MVP of the heavily edited Pelton cast. <laughs> Are you ever editing in the pauses? Does that happen? <laughs> you know, like you can't fake awkwardness like that. That has to be all natural. <laughs> anyway, you people got what you wanted. Katie has her third MVP. It's really impressive here. She's uh, right up there with like Jordan, you know, Russell, Kareem, uh, all these one named NBA stars. There was the whole thing this year about we can't vote Giannis an MVP a third time because he's not as good as those players, which he wasn't deserving of the MVP anyway. Uh, but Katie, she just sailed right on through for the third MVP. Never a question. I, I was I was scared. Very scared. Why were you scared? Well, the competition. It was, it was tough this year. <laughs> the, what was the competition? I mean, let's the, 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 the 
concept of remembering things. Yeah. <laughs> Two of the three other choices are static from year to year. Now, Tristan did, as we discussed last week, wage a PR campaign on his own behalf. He was putting if up billboards. Every single, if recording this podcast is a PR <laughs> campaign, that's like saying fucking LeBron James is waging a PR. Ca- did he wage a PR campaign by hitting that game-winning shot tonight? No, that's he what waged, you saw was he, a PR campaign. He waged a PR campaign by telling everyone that he could have seen three baskets. That was the PR campaign. <laughs> yeah, see, bro. That's please. <laughs> And, and quite a PR campaign Facts. it was. Facts. Anyway, I, w- I was remembering, uh, in honor of the real MVP, remembering some years, I was remembering some of Katie's greatest appearances from this year, which I'd forgotten about. But then I was thinking back to, was this around Apple Cup time that, we, that Katie had, I believe, two consecutive legendary Bob Wine appearances. I think, I mean, around then probably, yes. I mean, I don't know what time the Apple Cup was supposed to be played this year anymore because college football was so weird, but it was around Christmas time that there was Bob Wine. And we talked about Christmas songs, of course. So that happened. Yeah. I mean, I have no recollection of Bob Wine appearances, but. Well, the Bob Wine will do that to you. By September, vaccination had allowed us to resume recording in person, and we were prepared to attend another football game for the first time since 2020, starting with what seemed to be an easy matchup for UW against FCS opponent Montana. You know, it's nice to see that these things can happen again, for better or worse, that the Huskies are able to play a game against Montana. And, you know, it's a it's a throwaway game to a certain respect, but... They're playing it, and there are going to be fans there. And I think the chances of winning this one are 99%. You're like 97. Be a little more conservative here. Uh, I, my hope for this one is that they can, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting a 56-point margin of victory is that last time when it was a team that ended up playing in the, uh, the CFP, you know, the expanded New Year's Six games against Penn State that year. And had just come off playing in the actual college football playoff. Yeah, uh, Jake Browning. You can't, you can't compare any current sorry quarterbacks to star like Jake Browning, but I understand. I I'm hopeful that it's a blowout that gives them a chance to you know kind of get get some of their depth some playing time. I mean, if Sam Heward gets some snaps in this game, I think that's probably a good thing. When the Huskies instead lost 13-7 at home, it merited an emergency pod. And we are coming to you after one of the most stunning losses in the long and storied history of Washington Huskies football as they fall at home to FCS Montana, 13 to 7. I, I love your voice for this one. <laughs> I mean, what do, you, what do you want me to be excited? The funeral voice. No, you're, you're more down. I'm in the aggressive mindset right now. <laughs> wow. Well, look, I think one thing that we are going to indicate here is we are in very different stages of the five stages of grief. I don't know if there's any denial here. We all accept the Huskies lost what to Montana. What stage are you in? Bargaining. Bargaining? Oh, yeah. I, I do have, look, I'll get to a silver lining in the podcast later. That's fine. There is, there is a single silver lining to this loss. Maybe a couple, I suppose, depending on how you look at it. But right now, th- this is no time to be in the bargaining phase. I am bargaining hard. I'm bargaining, I'm are bargaining you really? hard. I you mean, are, first off, I want to c- congratulate the University of Montana Grizzlies 
for finally avenging that first round loss against the Husky basketball <laughs> team in the 2005 NCAA tournament. Well, wow, somewhere, somewhere Larry Kristoviak is smiling. It was a long con, but, but it was a great play because not only did they avenge that loss, they single-handedly ended the Husky football program for the next five to 10 years. See, this is there, the sort of there, thing that I am there going is to push back no against over the course of this podcast. From this, I am telling you right now what is happening with this program. You can see it. You know that this is true. What we're looking at, there is only one way that it isn't true, which again, we will get to later. But you can see where we're going with this. And sometimes when you have the wrong people in positions of power, it is good to learn that early. And that's what we learned here today. You've been, you're, you're rolling your eyes about this. We knew it last year. We knew it last when year. When they went three oh, and one? They got so fucking lucky to go three and one last year. That's like the Mariners this year. You're, That's you're, what you're citing okay. to me. Okay. You're coming no, first into off, this with it is their not three like and one Mariners. is basically fun differential. It is not like the Mariners. They, they, they against, did outscore their opponents. They played against trash teams and needed monster comebacks in those games. They played they awful. Monster comeback in one of the games. I mean, they they attempted to come back and failed to come back in the other. I guess they they it was Oregon State was a comeback as well. Technically, I guess it, they also won by seventeen against Arizona. Their overall point differential a was quite strong. Da. But it's four games during a pandemic. Two Did, in a row against that Arizona. Season baby. could not possibly have been more meaningless in every sense. It guided us. It showed us what we were going to learn from this program going forward, and we learned it all here today. There is nothing remotely comparable about trailing Utah at halftime and losing to Stanford, who, like, no matter how bad Stanford is, they're going to beat us in Palo Alto, and losing at home to Montana. Those are not yeah, anywhere on the same worse. continuum. Things have gotten even worse since then, but I think there were a lot of people who went into the season, and you saw it with John Donovan. There is no – John Donovan does not have an offense. There's no ethos to this team right now. There is literally nothing. There this is, is nothing the at all. productive analysis is just – and whenever everything goes wrong, it's the coach's fault and play the backup quarterback, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. The fundamental problem in this game and is the what? things that concerns how, me how from a process standpoint – something else in this game aside from that? The fundamental thing I saw in this game is the University of Washington, a top 25 ranked FBS program coming into the season, playing against an FCS program that is ranked in the top 10. You expect the FCS team might be better at execution. It might be more experienced, but they are going to be dramatically overmatched in terms of size and speed. And at yes. no point in this game did it feel that way. The UW offensive line, which should be the absolute strength of this team, has apparently like a top 10 pick at left tackle and returned everyone from last year's team, couldn't block Montana whatsoever. That's a problem. And then, and granted a factor in this is the fact that your top three wide receivers, your top four wide receivers after Jalen Polk went out very early in this game, were all on the shelf. Did you Why see Why were they on any... the shelf? What was the reason that well, we it's, it's college football. We don't find out. Jalen, no fucking Jalen McMillan, we only know he had surgery because he posted about it on Instagram. The whole fucking thing is a sham right now. I mean, why do we even watch college football? I agree. The two highest paid employees of the state currently have scored 13 points today. 
A week later, I traveled to Ann Arbor to watch the Huskies lose at Michigan. And, well, there was only one word to describe the experience. I want to talk about the experience to, just a little bit in the context of the game itself, because okay. everything about Saturday was humbling. Humbling? <laughs> like, the University of Washington is a big college. Uh-huh. We have a lot of famous alumni and a successful football program. Yeah. It just, it's like... Michigan is just on this whole fucking other level. Like, oh, oh, it's cute. You have a 70,000 seat stadium that you sometimes fill. Great. We have a 109,000 seat stadium that is full every single week. Oh, you've got some, you know, famous actors who were alumni or things like that. James Earl Jones was an alumnus and narrates our intro video. And that features a president, Gerald Ford, who played for our football team. All right, fine. You think, you know, you've got the greatest setting. We've got like, like everyone was so invested in it. They were in their seats 20 minutes before the game for like the pregame band performance and the flyover. And it's just like watching the student section, which was not actually entirely full most of the game. Wow. There was like brief stretches where it might've gotten completely full. I don't know whether they're in class yet. I assume they are. They but, Everywhere except for the Pacific Northwest, they're in class. Yes. except for the university of washington <laughs> in class. but it's like a sea of they hand out yellow pom-poms and it's just like a sea of those yellow pom-poms which actually make it extremely difficult to watch the game but it is an incredible visual i mean like i knew it was going to be an experience but even compared to what i expected it blew me away and obviously the last humbling part of it was watching the University of Washington football team against the University of Michigan football team. Oh, my God. During that trip, I also went to Indianapolis to see the Seahawks opener and the exciting debut for new offensive coordinator Shane Waldron. So you were in Ann Arbor. Was it humbling to be in Indianapolis, Indiana? Not at all. No, it was It was <laughs> like at all. the opposite. The it opposite like... you is empowering. <laughs> Uh, this is, I mean, Lucas. Like I'm in a big stupid dome here. We've got a beautiful stadium on the water in now, Seattle. Lucas Oil Field is a lovely stadium. I, I certainly prefer, you know, Lumen Field. Uh, but it's it was a great venue to watch the game. Had nice sight lines, despite being in the like middle level. It was these kind of three levels there, which was a little unusual. They've got a cool. Uh, kind of open area in the north end zone where I was able to meet third Pelton brother Ben Baldwin during halftime. Wow. And we were just both gritted because we've spent eight months here thinking about what a Shane Waldron Seahawks offense could look like. And we didn't see any of it in the preseason, thankfully. And then they unveiled it in week one. And it was everything we hoped and dreamed it could be like you you can't take the w on it in week one there's going to be adjustments it's a long season season in week one it's also that was russell wilson playing in a dome with the the roof closed and we know about russell wilson and dubs build the dome already seahawks build the roof but again from a process standpoint Everything the Seahawks did offensively was awesome. The good vibes were short-lived. A few weeks later, Russell Wilson suffered a pair of thumb injuries that required surgeries during a loss to the Rams that dropped the Seahawks to 2-3. and three. And we have not yet discussed the news that has rocked the Seattle Seahawks as uh, 
We did no post-game pod on Thursday after the Seahawks lost to the Los Angeles Rams. Of course, the big storyline there, the departure of Russell Wilson. And we learned on Friday that uh, a pair of injuries, an extensor tendon rupture, commonly known as mallet finger, and a community, community, community fracture dislocation of the proximal interphalangeal joint. And he had surgery performed by Dr. Stephen Shin at the Kerlin Job Surgery Center in LA with a timeline of four to eight weeks for Russell Wilson's return. Ian Rappaport of NFL Network reported Sunday that Wilson is targeting a return in week 10 versus Green Bay, which would mean missing, missing three games ahead of the week nine by at Pittsburgh, New Orleans, and Jacksonville for a team that is currently two and three and in last place in their division. So I, you know, this is a podcast that we've never been able, we've never had to do before. Been able is the wrong way to put it. It's a podcast we've never had to do before, right? We, I mean, since literally every week we've recorded a podcast, Russell Wilson, that the Seahawks have played. Russell Wilson has been healthy and started that game and finished that game. Started a podcast. The podcast went away. The podcast came back. Russell Wilson was steadfast during that time period. Uh, as the uh, Amazing that he managed to soldier on through the period where we weren't doing a podcast. It was, it was a real feat, but the, <laughs> It's something we haven't had to consider, and that is what will the Seahawks look like without Russell Wilson as their quarterback? And, you know, the circumstances of it with the situation and the team in general, they just, it's a pretty unique circumstance because we're going to talk about these next three to five weeks, kind of what, what it will look like. And to me, Russell Wilson not being there is a huge deal. But also, I think that more needs to be said about the Seahawks' long-term future success, potentially about the structure of the team and their defense, even more than it does about Russell Wilson. And, you know, I think the, the question is, is this team built to win games in the 2021 season? And how much of a difference does Russell Wilson make in that equation? Considering that they are two and three, they have a couple of pretty brutal losses when you look around at the results in other games that those teams have played, right? You know, losing to the Rams is one thing, but losing to the Titans and losing to the Vikings, really getting pretty dominated by the Vikings is another question. Those were games with Russell Wilson. So I understand that the, the conversation changes going forward, but if this is going to be the team and the defense that the Seahawks are going to field, I'm not sure how much of a difference Russell Wilson makes as far as the long-term success for this season on the Seahawks. Well, I got a couple of thoughts in response to that. I mean, my first thought is, and I did reflect on this actually the previous Sunday when Jimmy Garoppolo left the game at halftime against the Seahawks, just the fact that 49ers fans have had to do this repeatedly, go through this repeatedly with Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, obviously no fault of his, but he's suffered a series of injuries and how Hashtag blessed we have been as Seahawks fans to never have to worry about Russell Wilson's health basically his entire career. I mean, that's that's incredibly unusual. It's a, something we probably will, after Russell Wilson leaves the Seahawks, will never enjoy the rest of our lives again as football fans to go through a stretch like this of having elite quarterback play week in, week out for such an extended period of time. So, I, it, you know, as much as I think it's disappointing and and frustrating that Russell Wilson is injured now it's also kind of made me think wow how lucky have we been to not have to go through this while this was happening the expansion Seattle Kraken were preparing to play their first NHL game at newly renovated Climate Pledge Arena 
Back in September, Tristan raised some concerns when he heard who was going to open the building before the Kraken. Uh, we, so we got some news about Climate Pledge Arena earlier this week with the announcement on Tuesday night that Coldplay will open the arena on October 22nd, the night before the Kraken will play their first game at Climate Pledge. When the Kraken don't make the playoffs for like the first 50 years of their existence, we're calling this the Coldplay curse. <laughs> They're really opening the arena with Coldplay on it. It's not quite Pearl Jam. I think everyone kind of assumed that it would be Pearl Jam, given their, their ties to the local area. I, I don't know what their schedule looks like in October, if they hadn't kept this clear. But uh, yeah, that, that was not necessarily what I was expecting. They zagged. Whatever whatever curse there is that happens around the Kraken, which probably will happen because they're a Seattle sports team, we're going to pinpoint it all back to Coldplay here on October 22nd, 2021. <laughs> Even before Coldplay took the stage, with Wilson injured and UW football struggling through their worst season in years, it was evident something was off. Uh, but I would like to pose the question. Had the Kraken cursed all of Seattle sports? Oh, wow. And since they have played a professional game as a franchise, even a preseason game as a franchise, we're looking at, let's just, let's just go back to when they were, the arena was close to done. I mean, we have Husky football at the lowest point it's been in, in nearly a decade. Russell Wilson missing his first game since his ever. Uh, we have the Sounders losing a match on the road. Really not looking great. And the Kraken of all teams. Oh, well, rain lost. Not playing was, well. Oh, rain lost. six from Seattle sports teams that we are on our rundown on My Saturday My fantasy teams lost very devastating games on... Uh, uh, this last week. Weirdly, he, this didn't affect my fantasy teams, which went 3-0. Also, Death Cab for Cutie hasn't put out a great record in a few years. Uh, so, uh, you have to kind of... What do you think was the last great Death Cab album? <laughs> I don't know. Kintsugi. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> but you, Did you see the quote, by the way, that I retweeted from Ben Gibbard? What was the quote? So, during the concert on Tuesday, he said, the best thing about Climate Fledge Arena is that my commute to Storm, our commute to Storm games got much shorter. There it is. No disrespect to Everett. There it like is. Maybe a little disrespect to Everett, if I'm being honest. Oh, fine. We're fine with disrespect to Everett. That's not a question. The disrespect there is not to Everett, if we're being real here. It's to the Seattle Kraken. And that's what <laughs> Ben Gibbard is all about, is... It doesn't. He wasn't saying anything about the the what do you what do you call the tenant the the anchor tenant the anchor tenant. It's still fucking bullshit. Like if we're if we're if we are really honing in on this, having hockey as the number one tenant in this arena, it's not what we we're looking for. It's not what we wanted. It's fine. It's okay. We have reached a level of average. There's a thing to turn on root sports if we want to. But there's still not basketball. We're not doing 10 out. players to watch Philip Khrushchev or whatever, right? Like, we're not out here talking about... Well, I don't happen to write about the NHL. Whether you did or not, the reality... I feel like you would feel a lot different things about the this reality if I were is, an NHL national writer. By It would be a much worse podcast. <clears throat> and nobody listens as it is. Uh, the reality is... By prioritizing hockey over anything else, they have cursed the city of Seattle. Wow. And Seattle sports will never be good ever again. Wow. And I, I fear for another Death Cab for Cutie album. Oh boy. Well, I hope that that curse I, is lifted by shout, Saturday. Shouts to Ben Gibbard, though. Yeah.
That concern didn't stop Tristan from being impressed by his first visit to Climate Pledge Arena. So with that in mind, tell us about the arena. I'm, I'm so curious. It's incredible. I truly have to say, there is nobody who went into this experience with lower expectations than me. And wow, walking inside of that arena, right? I've been to Kirina, maybe, I don't want to say thousands of times. I've been to Kirina hundreds of times, right? Yes. And the feeling is still very much the same. Like the best part about Key Arena vis-a-vis any other basketball arena, basically in the entire country, was just how small it felt, right? How homey it feels. You feel like you're on top of the action and you feel like there's no bad seats in the arena. Granted, I sat in very good seats for this hockey game. The whole arena, like you're sitting in the lower bowl at the Rose Garden. I sat next to fucking... uh, 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 Sam Presti. Sam Presti. I intentionally forgot his name. Sat next to Sam Presti in very good seats at the Rose Garden. They are drastically different spaces to watch a sporting event. And it is incredible how they managed to fit that many seats into that small of a space and make it feel just so quaint in a way. Like you look around and you're like, this can't be more than 8,000 people here. You know, like the way that the seats are structured, it is incredible. And you could still feel the bones of Key Arena, but like the way that they built out the seats there is it feels like you're on top of the action no matter where you're at. Like you can look to the farthest seats in the house and it looks closer than they looked at Key Arena. Really? That's interesting. I mean, that that makes me excited from a storm perspective because I think one of my concerns about this is, you know, a bigger arena sometimes is not a great thing in the WNBA because, you you know, it can feel kind of empty if you've got too many seats in there, but which Key Arena never did. But it, it is sounds like this is not the exact opposite of cavernous. Wow. And like you walk through the corridors. I mean, it's interesting. Like you walk in and you're right there. There's no, you know, you, for people who've been to Key Arena, like the front steps into Key Arena, no matter which side you were on, you walk down like a large corridor of stairs, right? Unless and there was one entrance that you walked directly into the 200 level. The 200 level. But like to get to the 100 level, you would go down a long set of stairs and now you basically walk straight in there's a level below right and that's sort of where the 100 level is the stairs are just inside it's not that different of a structure like you know they already because of where the roof lived you're sort of limited by space and i think that that Correct. those limitations really helped the build out of this arena i think there are ways that this arena could have really been fucked up and i think if they would have started brand new it might have felt gaudy or it might have felt cavernous, but instead, because of those limitations, the team will probably move within the next 20 years. No, <laughs> like, but, but, but because of those limitations, it meant that they had to do it in such a homey feel. Like, you really feel like every person in the arena is right there with you. And I, I think it's a pretty incredible feat that they've accomplished. And again, I went into this not with no expectations whatsoever and just seeing how they structured it, the light of the arena, how they, how they uh, used the windows that are there, like how they use the, the, you know, built in roof, like everything about it was done exactly perfectly. In a lot of ways, it's like you walk the corridors, they feel almost sparse to a certain extent. 
there's not a ton going on inside of the arena and it's just like it is oh god trying to think of what the word that i'm looking for here is um there's like a lifestyle blog or whatever but like it, it feels very modern in every way like this is a pacific northwest arena and almost could not exist almost anywhere else I mean, that's that's cool to hear that it it has sort of a Seattle feel to it. And I, I agree with the natural light. I mean, that is one of my favorite things about Heck Ed, that you've got the windows at the, uh, what is that, the west end of Heck Ed. And uh, I've only been to a few games at Memorial Coliseum in Portland. They played a preseason game there for the Blazers a few years ago that I went to. And then when they used it during the PK-80 tournament, when they had games going on both at Moda Center and in Memorial Coliseum. And that was something I really liked. And it made it reminded me of the old Coliseum. And in some ways, the fact that you've got the natural light and can see the outside, it, it seems like without having been in there myself, there's a little more of a Coliseum feel, even though it's way larger than a Key Arena feel because Key Arena was just so concrete. Yes. Yeah. I'm assuming there's not as much concrete involved at Climate Pledge. Thankfully, they they did a very good job on this one, I will say. Also in October, we enjoyed fresh hop season and branded the fresh hop region. <laughs> I'm a little bit concerned here, though, because Deschutes Bend, Oregon, right? We're, we're getting pretty far south. Hops from Idaho. Questionable. These are not coming from the fresh hop region of the state of Washington. That's correct. And I don't know if this can be called an authentic fresh hop IPA. I think it can be a hop IPA, but to be a fresh hop IPA, it actually needs to come from the fresh hop region of Eastern Washington. I don't don't know if there's just a specific fresh hop region. I think that's just the hop region, but there are other hop regions. But there's a fresh hop region, and that's where fresh hops come from, right? To be an authentic fresh hop ale, it has to be from the fresh hop region of Washington. Are we in disagreement about this? <laughs> we are. I think this is some Veldcast geography here. I think it's mostly just that most We learned the... this year that fresh hops come from the fresh hop region of Washington. But the fresh hop region is the Northwest. And this is Yakima no offense. Look, the... we're previewing the NBA season. Our brethren in Portland have suited us very well in this time period where we have to cheer for hockey and not basketball. But they cannot have fresh hops in the state of Oregon. Their hops cannot be the freshest. I would agree with that. So... I mean, we're talking Germany, uh, well, the, Siegelhopfen, and Oregon. That is not where fresh hops come from. Look, the words fresh hop I, may be on this beer. There may but be it a fresh hop season from, in Germany. That seems plausible. All right, we'll give, we'll give, it, we'll US, give it to Bitburger. Within, it's it's got to be in the But a fresh hop IPA has to come from the fresh hop region of Washington. We're branding this, right? This is a real thing. Again, I know you're making this sound like there's a difference. Like this, this region is growing hops and this region is growing fresh hops. They're all the same hops. It's just some of them are being used immediately at harvest. Some are fresher. Let me just explain. You understand about the Champagne region of France, right? I champagne do. has to be from – you can have sparkling wine. Sparkling wine's great, right? Call it Prosecco. Call it whatever you want. But if it's not from the Champagne region of France, it's not Champagne. And if it's not from the fresh hop region of Washington State – it's not a fresh hop. Okay, Sorry, Deschutes. <laughs> fine. It's not a fresh hop beer this week. Anyway. Uh, tough, tough beat for us. Anyway. Well, to our we, we have a hop IPA. <laughs> By November, UW football season had gone from bad to disastrous after head coach Jimmy Lake was seen striking a player on the sidelines during a loss to rival Oregon. I mean, am I supposed to be up? We're, we're doing a podcast about the state of the UW football program. 
We felt that needed to happen after the combination of the firing of offensive coordinator John Donovan and a one-week suspension for head coach Jimmy Lake. And the state of the football program is bad. I, I don't know what to tell you, Chief. You're finally there. I'm, I'm finally there. I knew the state of the program was bad. I just It, it took was, you a long time to get to this point. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've, I think that I've been troubled by the state of the program for a long period of time. I just don't necessarily think that a coaching change is the solution to that. Okay. But we'll talk about now, that later. I mean, should we talk? Okay. I, what do you want to talk about first? Well, all of that, the state of the program is bad, culminating this past weekend with UW's biggest rival, Oregon, and really something like, that's... Sort you know of- what, though? Like, can we be real about something? There are fiercest rival, but this is not an even rivalry. In no sense is it an even rivalry. Oregon is dominant in every facet of this rivalry. Is the Huskies the Apple Cup an even years. rivalry? No. Who's our rival then? This is such a stupid argument. Cal? Rivalries don't have to be even. <laughs> well, There's no. This is like your Darby match. But like the, we can't the, be surprised that even or, is not part like, of what makes it a rival. Oh, what the is Huskies lost to their rival? Like that happens every year, except for the year where it's can't postponed due to a pandemic. Which, weirdly, in his post-game comments in the locker room, Mario Cristobal seemed to imply the Huskies chose to duck Oregon so that they could be Pac-12 North champions. Uh-huh. which definitely you want to give have COVID spread through your locker room to avoid Oregon. That's definitely a completely reasonable comment. Well, let's talk about completely reasonable comments because the week started with some comments from Jimmy Lake about the University of Oregon. Yes. Led to the entire week culminating in both the decision to punt down eight at the end of the game on fourth down from the 10-yard line and Jimmy Lake striking a player. Yeah. And that's that's why the state, there's so much more to it, but the state of the UW program being bad really culminated on Saturday night with those two moments and things moved away from, despite the fact that he may have been scapegoated the next day, they moved past John Donovan, right? John Donovan was the villain so far in, the, in this first half of the Husky season. Things became squarely on Jimmy Lake after that. Look, the offense didn't play well in this game against Oregon, but it became about so much more than just your offensive coordinator. Ultimately, a college football program is not about the coordinators. I think we overvalue the importance of coordinators throughout all of sports, throughout professional football, throughout college football. But in this moment, it is about head coach Jimmy Lake. Over the course of the season, we've lived vicariously through weekly updates on former UW quarterback Jake Hayner, now starring at Fresno State. You're not understanding that Jake Hayner is a generational type quarterback. <laughs> This is no disrespect to Jake Hayner. I'm just saying, if you're good enough to play early in your career, and can we you just see flip around to doing develop- a Fresno State update weekly? <laughs> That's all I want to know about is how Fresno State did last week. I do not care about how that skis played. Uh, you know, I'll have to get you the update on Fresno State. I'll have to look yeah, that look up. that up. You can imagine our excitement when not only did the Huskies hire Fresno State coach Kalen DeBoer as Jimmy Lake's replacement, reporting indicated that Hayner planned to follow him back to Montlake. You know who else is being a goldfish? Who's that? Me. You're forgetting about, the previous weeks? About this. Uh, we're going back to the UW football team for one second. Okay. Because I'm like a goldfish for this entire last UW season. And the amount that this Kalen DeBoer hire, like I was excited about Kalen DeBoer on his own and what he would do with the program. But you take Kalen DeBoer 
and you throw in just a little mixture of Jake Hayner, like Ken has not committed. That right there is like the East. That uh, we're all gonna rise now with these two together, <laughs> right? Like I'm telling you, I said that thing about LSU with Joe Burrow, and you know, want to know what the scary thing is? You're serious? I believe it. Oh no! I don't, don't get hurt again. You know the curse is still in effect. Fuck your curse. <laughs> curse is ended, baby. <laughs> Fuck your curse, Joe Boo. <laughs> the, the Seahawks won a game. <laughs> <laughs> All it took, a single win. Uh, this is the curse is overcast. Look, Gonzaga lost. What hasn't gone right in the world of sports? Portland Timbers. Whatever. Who cares? Alas, the next week, Hayner announced his plans to stay at Fresno State but we still managed to rationalize with another transfer quarterback from DeBoer's past. Let's move on to Husky football, where, as you mentioned earlier, the week's big news is that Jake Hayner is not coming back to Utah. Kraken! What has it this curse taken from us? (sighs) Not only... Did this curse take Jake Hayner from us? Right when you started talking about it, my computer crashed for like 20 minutes. So I didn't even have a chance to get all worked up about it. I got all, <laughs> you brought up Jake Hayner to me and then I had to do, to wait while I was doing updates or whatever. But like, I just, honestly, the person who should be taking a victory lap here, and I hate to give this person credit for anything. It is my least favorite thing to do on earth is to give this person credit for anything at all, any capacity, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. And that person is you. (laughs) I mean, you said it right away. You looked a fool for a second, but you said it right away in the Kalen DeBoer emergency podcast that it would be difficult for Jake Hayner to transfer back to the university of Washington. I, I talked to the listener, Damon, about this earlier this evening. He says hello. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Damon. <laughs> maybe hello to the other listeners as well. Keep uh, it going with the Nate and Danny memes. <laughs> Never stop. <laughs> Good news. He won't. What was, there was one that was, oh, the Aaron Sorkin is, doesn't have social media and he asked me to post this. Oh, I didn't see that one. I got to check that out. Uh, They're yeah, always the, perfect. There's never been a time where I'm like, no, no, no more Nate and Danny memes. 100% and, and, of the time, it's what I'm looking for. And he brought this up as well. He, he mentioned that I have untapped legal talent, which, uh, you know, that was that was my aspiration when I started college. I was anticipated becoming a lawyer. The, this whole podcaster thing wow. remains a lark. I think Anyways, how horrible your life would have been if you were a lawyer. No, I, I definitely would not be able to... Uh, uh, be I would not be uh, functionally retired at this. I age. went into college wanting to be a music journalist. Oof, dark timeline. Wow. <laughs> Nearly avoided that. Anyways, so <clears throat> it does seem that to some extent, Jake Hayner and Kalen DeBoer and a bunch of other people clearly misread the likelihood of him getting a waiver and being automatically eligible. It's tough to say how much that interacted with the fact that Fresno state hired Jeff Tedford, brought him back as head coach and, you know, Hayner feeling like, okay, I'm going back to the coach that I originally transferred to play yes. for. Really. It's, it's all always full circle with Jake Hayner, no matter yeah, what way capacity. Or yeah. <laughs> it's like a never ending circle that no matter which direct, 
I guess all circles are never ending. Uh, it's like two circles that are con- that are connected to each other that are never ending. I the just I just invented an eight. <laughs> <laughs> the Venn diagrams are just one circle. Jake Hader. Two two circles of Jake Hader's life stacked on top of each other that also intersect. It's the shape that's never been seen before. It's tough to know how much to blame the NCA here, I guess is what I'm saying. Blame the NCA? It's always a 100% ch- chance to blame the NCA. That's always what you should be doing. They're a much easier target, certainly, than Jake Hayner just wanting to play for Jeff Tedford. I, I think the reality is both of those things are true. Is if Jake Hayner would have known 100% that he was going to get that waiver, he probably would have already announced UW. And he, I, think I mean, the, he said in his video he was intending to come to UW. Like, he completely acknowledged that. At the same time, even if maybe he would have preferred to have come back to UW and to play with Caitlin DeBoer, the complications about the waiver plus Jeff Tedford ultimately outweighed that. It's not a bad outcome for him to stay at Fresno State and play for Jeff Tedford. Okay, so let me ask you a question. All right. Is it a bad outcome for the University of Washington that this happened? Or is there a silver lining? Well, are you looking for me to rationalize? Because let me tell you. I'm going to go get another drink. I'll 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 take your answer offline. Like I do. So we talked about this last week. Michael Penix Jr., another Kaelin DeBoer quarterback who he coached in one year at Indiana in 2019, had a higher QBR that season by far than Jake Hayner had last season when you adjust for his strength of uh, the competition that they faced. He is also entered his name in the transfer portal in the same situation where he would have just one year of eligibility. Now, he is a first-time transfer, so he would be automatically eligible next season, wouldn't have to go through the waiver process like Hayner would have had to. So if he chooses UW, then that may be a better outcome for UW than Jake Hayner coming back, oh. even though it's not a Jake playing quarterback for UW, which is still the best outcome. And let and- the rationalization games begin. The false hope of Hayner transferring also gave us a new verb. Hope's dash. Hope it, was a, a it was a mini Hayner. <laughs> <laughs> it was much quicker than Jake Hayner, a, that's for sure. Like a 30-second Hayner. Uh, <laughs> wow, I love that. That's what it's called when you think it's something's going to happen and then it gets dashed. I hate to get Haynered. Uh, I got You know what? Deontay Johnson hatered me a little oh, bit today. Oh, come on. I'm just saying... In the wake of Wilson's injury, the Seahawks finished the season 7-10, but Tristan found a silver lining in the performance of running back Rashad Penny during the final month of the season. Or was it? Wow, I just thought of something about the Kraken curse. What's that? The Kraken curse made Rashad Penny good at the end of this last season. Intriguing. You know, someone replied that Sue Bird was fighting against the Kraken curse, but maybe Rashad Penny is as well. No. Rashad Penny is not. Rashad Penny is all part of it. As That's a long play, I guess. Think about the curse. Here's what happens. You get your hopes up? Rashad Penny has a breakout at the end of the season. Everybody's like, you know what? The offense is good now. Let's run it back. And we're running it back based upon the high-level play of a running back who's been injured for more than half of the games uh, that he would have hypothetically been available. 
ultimately we run it back with our 79 year old head coach. Which is just 70. 70. Okay. I added a decade on there with our (laughs) 70 year old head coach. And we said, now is the time that he's going to learn. We ran it back with Russell Wilson, who was disgruntled after making the playoffs, after winning the NFC West. And we said to ourselves, that's seven and 10 season. That's what we're going to build on. This is the most advanced curse we have (laughs) ever dealt with. This curse gave us a month of good play. This curse convinced us that we should just ignore losing to the Bears and say that everything is good at the end of the season. I I feel like if you define it this way, if you go with the, what what does Nate Silver call it? The 13-dimensional chess theory. Like you can define anything as part of the Kraken curse by that point. That's what this is, though. UW men's basketball won a game. It was just to get our hopes up. Well, but I'm saying, is long-term UW basketball going to be good now because they won a game? I'm not saying that. I'm saying it can't both be every time a team loses, it's the Kraken curse, and every time a team wins, it's the Kraken curse. If every time the team wins, it's to get them to 7-10 and and then say to yourself, yeah, we need to run it back after that, that was a good season. Russell Wilson saying he wants to run it back, I think was the goal. I think that was the hope, wasn't it? Would you want Russell Wilson to demand a trade? I really don't even know now. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just telling okay. you, you I, it just hit me. It, it really, because I was like, wow, is the curse over? Rashad Penny played well at the end of the year. And then I thought to myself, did you actually just think to yourself that the curse was over because Rashad Penny played well at the end of the year to get the team to seven and 10? That's what the curse is about. Come on. I can't believe it was right there in front of us and we missed it. You just said you just said that the Kraken played well because they lost what to the Colorado Avalanche? Four to three. Okay, well, I, I guess that actually was closer. Yeah, than I that checks out. No, the seven to two was the previous matchup. And that's where we leave off. Thanking you for listening to the last hundred episodes and hoping the next hundred include a lot less curse talk.